0: are working our way through Genesis. Well, not really. We're doing like five chapters in Genesis. It's a big book, 50 chapters. And I hope that this just gives you a bit of a teaser. And so that uh, it kind of whets your appetite and you try to read the whole book. And that would be a great uh, New Year's resolution. If you plan to do that, pace yourself And I want to give you just kind of a bit of a guide, a really rough and quick guide, just so you know where you're going uh, in the book of Genesis. And it's super simple. Chapters 1 through 11 really focus on four foundational stories, four framing stories. Stories of creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And these stories help us to find our place in God's creation. They help us understand our sin, they help us also understand uh, how God has placed us in His image in the world, they help us understand how things go so wrong in the world. And so these four foundational stories are critical, and they're found in Genesis 1 to 11. But then Genesis, the narrative, it changes, and instead of focus on these foundational stories, it focuses on four foundational characters. And so Genesis 12 through 50, the biggest section, focus on the characters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so lots of other things happening in the book, but if you want to kind of navigate your way through and anticipate what's coming without giving away the ending, Joseph dies in the end, but without giving away the ending too much. Um, that, that's kind of the, the, the rough and quick guide to what's happening in Genesis. But here's where I want to say something. Today, we are going to read another foundational story that I think is the most overlooked foundational story in Genesis. And it's the story of Cain and Abel. And I say it's it's overlooked because I think we know the story. It makes it into pop- popular culture a lot. Uh, we talk about uh, Cain and, and all sorts of things are done with his name. And um, But do we really know what's happening in the story and how important it is to us today? The New Testament writers certainly did. The New Testament writers pick up this story multiple times. I even think that Jesus alludes to the story, but certainly we see the story directly referred to in books like Hebrews and Jude and 1 John. It's that foundational to us. So we're going to read it together, and I'm going to again read the whole chapter, so bear with me and read along. Genesis chapter 4. But here's the question I have as we read today. What is this story really about? And I want to give you a clue. It's not about murder. Okay, so be thinking as we go through this Um, story in Genesis chapter 4. The other thing I have to say right from the top is there's a whole lot of sex in this story. Like right after the fall, it's like sexual relations. And in older translations, we'll read Adam knew his wife. I remember when my girls were smaller and they asked me, in what way did he know his wife? Ask your mother was the answer. But other translations make it a little more explicit. So you'll hear that as we go through Genesis chapter 4. You ready? Oh, good. One person. Okay, here we go. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant, because that's sometimes what happens. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. Now I'm going to stop us there for a moment. This little phrase, which translated lots of different ways, When Eve says, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man, it's actually a really short phrase in Hebrew that means, he's here. It's an interesting phrase. And sometimes we translate, I have a man, or in older translations, I have gotten a man. What is Eve saying here when when she exclaims, he's here? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, right in the midst of God proclaiming kind of judgment and also the consequences of sin, There's a promise, and the promise is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And I wonder, that first baby born, Cain, right, comes out and Eve goes, he's here! He's here! Little did she know (laughs) that instead of holding the fresh new savior of the world, she was actually holding in her arms a baby who would become the first murderer in the world. And you thought you disappointed your parents. So that's what's happening as we start. It starts with this, this, this promise, this hope, that the Savior's already here in Cain. And we know the story takes a different twist. Okay, let's keep reading. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. "'Why are you so angry?' the Lord asked Cain. "'Why do you look so dejected?' "'You will be accepted if you do what is right.' But if he refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know. Cain responded, "'Am I my brother's guardian?' But the Lord said, "'What have you done?' "'Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me "'from the ground. "'Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, "'which has swallowed your brother's blood. "'No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, "'no matter how hard you work. "'From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer "'on the earth.'" Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. I, I added that little line. He's such a whiner. Like He just killed his brother, and, and God doesn't kill him back. And he's like, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence, and you have made me a homeless wanderer. No, I think you did that, Cain. Anyway, I'll stop commentating. I'll read them. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, no, for I will give... A sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had sexual relations with his wife. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain founded a city, which he named Enoch after his son. Enoch had a son named Erad. Erod became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methusiel, and Methusiel became the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women. The first was named Adah, and the second named Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, who was the first of those who raised livestock and lived in tents. His brother's name was Jubal, the first of all who play the harp and flute. Lamech's other wife, Zillah, gave birth to a son named Tubal-Cain. He became an expert in forging tools of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain had a sister named Namah. One day, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 70 times, 77 times. We're, we're not going to attack that or, or look at that part of the passage. We'll do that next week. Okay, wrapping up. Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. When Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. What a story. Gives us the the beginnings of lots of things, right? And as we go through it, uh, we have lots of questions, don't we? And we could spend all our time just asking important and interesting questions like, where did Cain find a wife? <laughs> and if you have time to explore that, uh, feel free to have at it. I'm not sure the passage tells us, and maybe that's an indication that that's not the kind of knowledge that we need to focus on. But there are other questions, too, like, how did they know what to sacrifice? Right? Uh, there's no law been given. There's no temple. There's no instructions. How did they know even to worship? How did they know what to bring? Is it even fair that Cain was rejected if there's been no instruction given? And how did they know whether they were accepted or not? We're not told that either. I read read a rather lengthy explanation from one person's perspective who said that they must have brought the sacrifices to the angel that had the flaming sword that was guarding the tree of life, and that the angel did something with the sword, and it indicated whether the sacrifice was accepted or not. I'm like, wow, that's fascinating, and completely unbiblical. Like, you just don't find, it's not in there. And so I think this is a bit of a lesson to us when reading through some of these origin stories. We have to be careful if we're too eager to fill in the gaps. In order to kind of reconcile everything. I think sometimes we have to be content with the tension of unknowing, (laughs) of not knowing for certain all the curious questions that we have, right? And we have to be content with what God has revealed, understanding that this passage isn't just a historical passage. It's meant to instruct us in our faith. It's actually meant to make us greater disciples of Jesus. So, as long as the passage and our questions are moving us in that direction, uh, then they're where they're worth asking. We've got to be careful of doing too many theological gymnastics in order to reconcile some of the things that we don't understand. But I have to say, when I first read this passage uh, this last uh, month or so, my first impressions is that it was about conflict and murder. And that was going to be the kind of focus of the message, kind of the origins of conflict, the origins of murder, the origins of tension between brothers, and how that affects all of us, all of humanity today. But as I read it, and maybe you picked up on this too, as we read through it together. As I read it, I realized that this is really a passage about worship. This is a passage about worship. That's really at the heart of what's happening in this passage. Now, ask Pastor Samuel and he'll tell you that conflict and worship tend to go hand in hand. So it's good to know, right, Samuel, that even right at the very beginning, we see that there's conflict at a time of worship and uh, we seem to be keeping that tradition alive sometimes. Um, But uh, we see this even in other people's uh, sermons. I was watching another pastor just trying to steal ideas from him. And, uh, and he had a great title for his message. We should have thought of this, Samuel. His title for this passage was Murder After Church. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. We could have advertised that on the side and just packed things out, everybody waiting for the murder after church. Well, hopefully nobody is murdered after our service. Um, but this is what's happening. They come together to worship. Two brothers come to worship. And then afterwards, one kills the other. So we do have to ask this question. Why was Abel's act of worship, his sacrifice, accepted and Cain's sacrifice wasn't? Isn't that part of the the question? Why was his worship accepted and Cain's was rejected? Because in a sense, they were their own priests, right? Right. There were no other priests for them. They were offering a sacrifice kind of for themselves. They were presenting an offering on their own behalf. So why was one accepted and the other wasn't? Well, some people would say it was blood versus grain. And God loves a bloody sacrifice. (laughs) But I'm not sure that that's what this is about. Because as we see, when the law does come, and as you read through Leviticus, there was a provision for grain sacrifices. Maybe not for sin, but there was grain sacrifices that were acceptable to God. And so even though Cain brings grain, maybe that's not the reason why his sacrifice is rejected. But I think we get some clues in the passage. And if you're reading along with me and you notice this, you'll see that at harvest time, that's when this happens, at harvest time it says, Cain presents some, while Abel brought the first and the best. Do you hear the difference in the passage? Cain gave some. Here you go, God. Here's some wild grain for you. Will that do? While Abel brings his first and his best. And I think this gives us a sense of where the passage is leading us. Because it's not just about the quality of the sacrifice. It's actually about the condition of their heart. It's about what's going on inside as they come to worship. And this is always the burden in Scripture, that God does not look on the outward appearance, but rather he looks on our heart. And this is what's happening here. In Psalm 51, uh, David, he was caught in sin with Bathsheba, And so when he's finally caught, he owns up, right? And he makes a big confession before God. And as part of that confession in Psalm 51, he says this, "'God, you do not desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one. "'You do not want a burnt offering. "'The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. "'You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God.'" You're not looking for a bloody sacrifice. You're looking for our heart all along, right from the beginning. Cain was not able to offer his heart. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, it makes it abundantly clear what's happening here. It says this in uh, chapter 11, verse 4. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by the example of his faith. Abel's sacrifice, his worship was accepted because it was done in faith and from his heart. And that's the lesson I think we have. How does Abel speak to us today? What does he challenge us with? I think there's a number of questions we can ask ourselves. Do we bring our first and best to God? Or does God just get some of us? I think we heard that in the testimony with the Curios group that was up here today. That sense of, I realized that I was going through life just giving God some. You know, the leftovers. Whatever's available when I'm done with all my other energy and and interests. And God is saying, I I want your whole heart. I want all of you. Because we want to be in this kind of relationship together. So do we come with the right heart of worship? Or are we filled with our own sense of self-importance? as Cain seemed to be. Cain's offering lacked priority, and it lacked sincerity, and so it was rejected. And that's the reason. Well, what does God do in this? And this is really important in the passage, because I love how God responds. Even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of sin, God responds with mercy and grace. And he did this with Adam and Eve, you remember? Adam and Eve's sin, and instead of dying immediately, because that's what was said, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. Instead of dying immediately, God actually gives them the promise of a future. And then he kills an animal and makes them clothes to hide their nakedness. There's this grace that's in the midst of, of a judgment. And God does the exact same thing here with Cain. First of all, God reasons with Cain. And he treats him kind of like a, a pouting child. Cain is upset. He's downcast. He's frustrated that his brother was accepted and he wasn't. And God goes along and says, hey, little buddy, how do we turn this frown upside down? That's what it feels like, right? Why, why are you so discouraged? You know, this, this is fixable. We can, you can do something about this. It, it, it's not the, the, uh, the sin that's going to condemn you forever. Right? And so God reasons with Cain. And when that doesn't work, God warns Cain. He gives him a warning. He says, Look, you've got to address this anger that you've got in your heart because sin is crouching at the door. Be aware that if you don't address this anger in your heart, it's going to lead to something else, something bigger, something that you can't go back from. It reminds me of when Jesus, when he talks about sin and he says, Anybody who is angry with his brother without a cause has committed murder in his heart. That's what's happening here. Cain was already going down that road, and and God says, just warning, sin is crouching at the door. Deal with your anger before it leads you to a place where you can't go back from. But then even after Cain ignores all of that and kills his brother, what does God do? God protects Cain. Cain. This is amazing to me. I mean, it shouldn't it have been an eye for an eye or something like that. And yet here God protects Cain because Cain says, oh, the punishment is greater than I can bear. I mean, he just killed his brother, but God has mercy on Cain. All of that is to say this, and we found this in Adam and Eve as well. We find it here, and I wanna say it again. God does not treat us according to our sins, but according to his mercy, amen? So thankful for that. Also, we are not to treat one another according to our sins, but according to God's grace and mercy, right? And so we see that really strongly in this passage. Well, in the end, Cain shows his true colors. Uh, he gives in to his anger. He murders his brother. He denies his own responsibility for his brother. He refuses to take responsibility for his actions and he didn't feel bad about his sin. That's what's so frustrating in all of this. Cain never showed a glimpse of remorse in all of this. He didn't feel bad about his sin, but he just felt bad about his punishment. He was selfish through and through, and his actions reveal his heart, and that's why his worship was rejected. Well, don't be too hard on Cain. I don't like him. I mean, you read through the passage and you're like, "Ooh, that guy, right? I don't like Cain very much at all, but I have to be careful because just as I'm pointing at Cain, I realize I'm Cain sometimes, right? We are Cain. I think that's what we're meant to do in this story as well. We're able to to see that and see ourselves. It, It reveals some of the sin in us when we're jealous of others when they succeed and we don't, when we shift the blame when we play the victim all the time, and when we refuse to deal with the consequences of our actions, we are Cain. But it doesn't have to be that way, says God in the passage. You can do what is right, and in doing what is right, have your worship accepted and pleasing to God, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So while Abel's example establishes a true heart of worship for God, Cain's establishes a kind of false religion. That's what's happening here. That's the first. A kind of false religion that's centered on ourselves and not centered on God. And it all, it all flows from worship. That's the starting point. Don't think we realize just how important worship is in orienting our lives along the right path. There's a great quote, and I've I've mentioned it multiple times. It's one of the foundational quotes that kind of anchor my life. It's from Eugene Peterson uh, in his book, Reverse Thunder. And he says this, Worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. And we move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy. Worship centers our lives. And Abel centered his life in God. Cain did not. So what do we take away? A couple of things quickly. First of all, don't be like Cain. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? Uh, but that's exactly what it says in 1 John chapter 3. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. Don't be like Cain don't kill your brother and sister. Now, most of us won't go out and say, well, okay, that's easy. Uh, I don't have a brother or sister. So that lets me off the hook. But remember the words of Jesus. If we harbor anger in our heart against our brother, against our sister without a cause, we're guilty of murder. We have to be careful. We have to be careful with our speech of murdering our brothers and sisters with gossip and with slander and with those kind of things. So don't be like Cain, love one another. That's part of the, the passage here. And on the reverse side, be like Abel. We're called to be like Abel, to give God our first and our best, to give this a priority and to worship in sincerity of heart. Be like a- Abel, even if it's costly to do so. And then the last thing I wanna point out is this. This whole passage points us to Jesus. All of these passages leads right to Jesus, and we find that in John chapter one, and verse twenty nine. And it, uh, I'm not going to read that that verse. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter twelve, apparently, because I didn't write John one twenty nine. Look up John one twenty nine; it's a good verse. Hebrews twelve does say this: You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness, instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried for vengeance, but the blood of Jesus speaks forgiveness. And this is how the story leads us to Jesus. At the beginning with Abel, it was one lamb for a single man, right? But later at the Passover in Egypt, it was one lamb for a family. And then later at the Day of Atonement, it was one lamb for the whole nation. And then finally with Jesus, there was one lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to these stories which you have preserved for us, that are ancient and important and inspired by your Spirit, we ask for guidance in knowing the right questions to ask and the right way to allow these words to shape our lives. So by your Spirit, help us to be those who offer an act of worship to you that comes from the sincerity of our hearts. You know us through and through, and you invite us into your presence. Help us to do so, not because we are great or do so on our own terms, but do so because of the blood of Christ which was shed for us that makes the way possible. We thank you that Jesus is the way. In his name we pray, amen.